From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Svenja O'Donnell is a fantastic journalist. I've been a big fan of hers. She's a friend of mine. I've been a big fan of hers for years. She has a very cosmopolitan background, as you'll hear. She's got Irish, German, brought up in Paris, lives in London now. And she's just written her first book, Inga's War. It turns out that her remarkable grandmother, to whom she's very close, had a, a dark story of forced migration, sexual violence, murder, terrible hardship, all at the end of the Third Reich, during the collapse of the Third Reich, 75 years ago this year. After an offhand remark from Svenja, our grandmother started telling her this stuff, and this book is a result of those conversations and historical research. It's a remarkable story of, of the human consequences of the gigantic historical, the tectonic shifts that we talk about so often on this podcast. Millions and millions of displaced people were moving around Europe 75 years ago uh, this summer, brutalised, suffering victims of terrible criminal regimes and appalling conflict. Uh, if you want to watch any documentaries about the Second World War, the place to do so is History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. We've got all the back episodes of the podcast. We are growing bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, if you want to head over to History Hit TV, you can use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get a month for free and then you get another month, which is one pound, euro, dollar, whatever currency you're paying in. Pretty sweet. And if you go to the History Hit if you go to historyhit.com slash shop, you can buy a special historical face covering. So if you want to have Winston Churchill's jawline, you want to have Abraham Lincoln's jawline when you're going to the shops wearing face covering to protect other people, you can do so at historyhit.com slash shop. Go and check it out. In the meantime, everyone, here's Svenja O'Donnell. Enjoy. Uh, Svenja, it is very, very special to have you on the podcast with this with this remarkable project. Um, just tell everyone, uh, give everyone just a sense of, of, of what this story is about. Well, this story started when my grandmother uh, started confiding in me a few years ago and telling me the story of her past, which she'd always uh, kept back. It's a story of a woman who lived World War II on the wrong side. She was a German who was born in what was then Königsberg, now Kaliningrad. And I like to describe it as a story of what happens to the people in the middle. So not the heroes or the villains in a war, not the main actors of a war, but the people who find themselves trapped in events beyond their control. And to me, it raises a question of what would we have done in the same circumstances? A question that sort of remains a grey area even today. And so your your grandmother, I mean, it's, it's so I always find it fascinating talking to friends um, with with. At links to that part of the world because growing up in in my, in my little bubble, grandparents were heroic figures who were on the quote unquote unquote right side of the war and did and did heroic things and we and of course we didn't explore their trauma but we they they were able to gain great ha- happiness from recollecting those days and 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 they knew they were on the right side of history as it were and 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 for friends like you with with your heritage. It must be completely different. I mean, were you aware, before your grandmother confided in you, were you aware that there was a dark 
untalked about past there or did you just not, not think about it? Well, my mother, you know, moved from Germany when she was 18 and rebuilt her life in France. So I, I grew up in France. And and in France, when certainly when you were a child of the 80s and the 90s, like, like I am, uh, you learn that everyone's grandparents were in the resistance. And of course, I was very conscious of being the one half German child in the class. My mother always told me that her family had not been Nazis. But, you know, when I grew up and I became a journalist, I was very sceptical of that. My grandmother never really talked about about the war or much about her past. There were a few things dropped here and there. So when she started telling me about her coming of age, which, you know, she was she was 15 um, when uh, when war was declared, it, it, it was a sort of I had a fear that, you know, there were going to be sort of Nazis in the closet, so to speak. And instead, I discovered a story that was perhaps much more ordinary um, but heartbreaking, a story of, of, first of all, good people, fundamentally good people who perhaps did not do heroic things, but who tried to live their lives as best they can, who had to deal with the fact that the world as they knew it had changed irrevocably very, very fast indeed, and who then had to rebuild everything from scratch. It's, it's a story of refugees, essentially, of women who are always sort of left behind, both in their accounts of war, but also by the turn of events, they were sort of left at home to cope with the repercussions. Um, and I think from a German perspective, it's a story that, that is not talked about enough, partly because of Germans' reticence to talk about their own identity, because Germany has done a huge amount of work on, on owning and facing up to the atrocious crimes of the Nazi regime, but at the same time forgetting that whole slice of trauma that so many people, particularly German women, endured. Why did your grandmother start talking to you? What, what triggered that? I was a correspondent in Moscow and I went to Kaliningrad, uh, which I knew my mother was born in when it was still Königsberg, when it was still German. And I called her, you know, we weren't particularly close at the time, but I called her to sort of mark the occasion. And you've got to understand, my grandmother was someone who had very carefully curated her life. She was fairly emotionless. She was very controlled. And when I told her where I was, uh, she didn't know about my trip. She started crying. And it was the first time that I'd, that I'd heard her express emotion, really. And um, I think what followed was she started talking to me about reminiscences of our childhood and gradually uh, when she faced uh, further traumas in her life, she lost her husband, the rest all started to come out. At what stage did you suddenly realise that this was worth, uh, you know, researching, donating years of your life to writing this book? So I think when... I started to realise that this was really a story about women and women over overcoming um, the hand they're dealt with in life. When she started talking about her this great love story that she'd had with my grandfather during the war, when I realised that there were not Germans per se in the war, there were just two kids who happened to be on the wrong side of it, who did not want to be involved in these events but were. Um, and when I realised that her aloofness and her reserve 
was due to things that she'd experienced in the past. I suddenly realised that we were not just dealing about a story of East Prussia and, and you know, fa- though that's fascinating in itself, a dry story of a, of a land that, that the world has forgotten, but a very personal story of a woman who has dealt with her past with silence, as so many women have. So let's talk about, let's talk about that past. Uh, she... Uh, talk to me about what her and her community um, through the beginning of the war, the beginning and and middle of the war, uh, how how did they, how did they respond? How did they survive, flourish, suffer under Nazi German rule? And then, uh, and also did they, you know, sending loved ones, what what trauma was there even before the arrival of of an external enemy? I mean, were were they losing loved ones uh, on distant battlefields? Well, I mean, one thing I should say is that Königsberg was, there were many German communities across Eastern Europe, but Königsberg uh, was very particular in that it had been German for seven centuries. And it was always sort of mythologized as this embattled uh, German frontier land because of the events that followed World War World War One, um, and the creation of the Polish Corridor, they were already isolated. So the, the Nazis seized upon upon that land as a kind of symbol of, uh, you know, embattled German culture. In reality, um, you know, they, they, they felt pretty detached from um, the, the, the main Reich. Uh, you know, Prague was as close as Berlin, for example. It, it, it was to, to get to Berlin or to get to Western Germany took a very long time, was very difficult. So their their culture was rooted in the East. When it comes to the war, at the beginning of the war, they had a pretty easy time of it. Because they were so far removed, it felt almost normal. But when young men started to to be enlisted, um, they were usually sent to the Eastern Front. And the Eastern Front, certainly from about the end of 1942, became one of the worst battlegrounds that you could possibly be on. The conditions, largely because of of, um, Nazi mismanagement, were horrific. The soldiers were ill-equipped. They they were not used to the cold. They they were sort of real sort of cannon fodder. They were poorly trained. They didn't have enough food. And I think the, the, the Eastern Front, which became sort of a famous in itself and in sort of stories of war for for absurd loss of life is best encapsulated by the battle of stalingrad where where this entire battalion of the army was was sacrificed when their own general who led them knew that this was this was absolutely pointless and then hitler uh effectively ordered his government to lie about their fate so a very large number of men were captured but there were their families were told they were dead Eventually, the truth leaked out. But this is this is the extent of the sacrifices. They were they were willing to erase uh, their, a part of their own army from you know from existence, not so as not to lose face. The other thing we should of course talk about is that Königsberg had, you know, compared to places like Berlin, a small, but a very old and thriving Jewish community, and. Although that has been gradually rebuilt in the last 20 years or so, it was, for a while, entirely obliterated. But you're right, I'm reminded that Immanuel Kant came from Königsberg, so it was yes. incredible, the, the most German of thinkers. Um, and so did your grandmother 
remember that that element of the the Holocaust, the the, the Jews being removed. Did she talk about that? She did. She um, when we spoke about it, and I, I sort of tried sort of rather carefully around the subject. She she started talking about it because she talked about her. She went to finishing school in Berlin. And she had a sort of schoolgirl pash on, on her roommate there. He was this extremely beautiful, talented girl. Uh, bear in mind, this is in about 1940. And who she found packing her bags and crying one day and asking her why, um, you know, she was so upset. This girl turns around to her and says, well, don't you realise I'm Jewish? Which, which highlights two things. How, firstly, how naive she was. And she said herself she was so stupid that she didn't realise, you know, the, the reality of being Jewish, even in 1940 in Germany. But secondly, that a lot of Jews who, who were, you know, German first and foremost, stayed that late until it was too late to go. And the thing that really um, devastated her was that she couldn't remember that girl's name. And when I asked her fairly forthrightly, you know, did you know did people know what had happened? She said, well, I think people deep down knew atrocities were happening, but they did not want to see. And I think that, for me, that underlined a really important point is that, you know, your neighbours start disappearing. You can tell yourself a story that, oh, you know, they've been resettled out east or, you know, I, I, you know again, the, the realities of the of the death camps was 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 kept sort of secret for a while, but it doesn't take a huge leap of the imagination uh, to know that that a very major line in humanity has been crossed. But if you accept that, then you have to question the premise of your entire life, the entire life that you've built, the life that you've taken for granted. In the case of her father, you know this this business, this success that he'd built. And and then then you're on very shaky ground indeed. And of course, to speak out back then would have meant arrest at best. So I think it's very. I always thought as a child that you know, of course, I would have been one of the people who would stand up and be counted. I think reality is is very very different. When when does the war start to impact her even more directly? Well. Her her lover, my grandfather, who she had a, a teenage romance with, who, you know, she said secretly become engaged to, had managed to defer his uh, enlistment. He was someone who loved jazz and hated war, didn't want to fight. There came a point where he couldn't do so anymore. So in 42, at the end of 42, he gets sent off to the Eastern Front. And that's when she starts seeing war with very different eyes. She notices when she's still in Berlin at the time, going around her daily life, that there are very few men there. So something that had never struck her before. Uh, she starts listening to updates of the war. And the following year, after Stalingrad, you know, a real shift happens, uh, it, the broader German population. Everyone realises that this mythical Battle of Stalingrad is a lie. And they start tuning into much more to foreign radio stations who are reading out names of German prisoners of war. Obviously, this was a crime punishable by death. So she starts tuning in. She starts trying to listen. Her parents start trying to listen. This idea that this regime is a sham and, and it becomes much more of a reality. When it really hits home 
is in late 1944, when she's back in Königsberg, and the Red Army breach this supposedly invincible border and make one just one day incursion in the village of Nemesdorf, which of course the Nazis use for at great propaganda value, describing massacres, which you know and atrocities no doubt happened, but it's very hard to verify them. But then people know that it's over, it's too late. Unfortunately, the government has also decreed that they are not allowed to leave. Again, we have this mythologizing of East Prussia, this idea of the last stand. If you're a good Nazi, a good German citizen, you will stay and fight to the very end. Whether you're my grandmother, who was a young woman of, of then 20, or a small child or an elderly man. So people are trapped and they're waiting for the Russians to come. And, you know, it's worth noting that while conditions were terrible for German soldiers on the Eastern Front, the, the German army committed atrocities on an absolutely enormous scale in the Soviet Union. So they know that revenge is coming. And unfortunately, they are the first territory to lie in the Red Army's path. So for, they were fairly lucky in that in, in January, suddenly this, this order to stay is lifted. By then, they're surrounded by land. So there's no escape that's possible by land. The trains to the west are being turned back. The Russians are about four hours walk away, which is, you know, ridiculously close. And they, everyone flees for the coast. There are two ports in the East Prussia region where large steamers, military transport vessels are scrambled to collect civilians, but also, most importantly, soldiers, because even then they were trying to kind of prioritise munitions, even though everyone in the army pretty much knew the war was lost. So these, um, bear in mind, it's January in a, in a state which is now... Uh, a Russian excavates in the Baltic, so the temperatures are extremely cold. Many, many people are very elderly or very, very young. Many people die on the road to the coast because, you know, you make your way by, by sort of cart. And then you, uh, and most of the infrastructure had already been destroyed by a, by a bombing raid um, the previous summer. Once you arrive on the coast, it's a free fall and you have to cram into these boats. And of course, they were, their, their route at some point came just behind a, a tragedy that remains one of the biggest naval casualties of civilians in, in, in any war, which is the sinking of the Willem Gustloff, carrying 10,000 refugees, mainly refugees, women and children, torpedoed um, by, a, by a Soviet submarine and which, of course, sank, killing almost everyone on board. And th they saw that. And so I think th the reality of that flight and leaving everything behind, I think that's when they realised that their lives as they'd known them were irrevocably over. I mean, you know, they went through the, the bombing of Königsberg, survived, still kind of carried on, were trapped. And then in January, they realised, right, this is the... the Life as we knew it, it will never be the same again. Where's your grandfather at this point? My grandfather at this point has been missing, uh, presumed killed. It turns out that he is a prisoner of war in, um, in a Russian camp, where he remains until about 1946. 
of course, one of the things about um, German prisoners of war in um, Soviet territory is that many of them um, stayed there until as late as 1950 or even beyond. Um, they they became these kind of pawns in um, in the, in the, the post World War Two reparations. So he she doesn't know where he is. She's a, a single mother effectively, um, and her parents are fairly elderly. They were quite old when they had her, and are completely left completely sort of helpless by events. So she has to take charge. And this is, you know, a young girl whose main skills were were learned at finishing school, so she's not very well equipped for life. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yamaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And, and, and so they get to the coast, it's chaos. She's all, got all these dependents. What happens then? Well, she flirts her way onto one of the boats. Um, they have tickets, but every, you know, the, the boats are sort of, the tickets are only for about a tenth of the capacity of the people waiting there. So everyone is trying to get on there. She spots an officer who, she was a very beautiful woman, who she noticed him, him looking at her, she flirts with him, hides her parents and her child. He invites her to shelter in his cabin and says, you know, I've got to go for a couple of hours, you'll be fine here. By the time he comes back, he finds her with two, you know, her two parents, a baby and some neighbours that they'd spotted uh, on the quay. But, you know, as she, as she puts it, uh, she described this, this encounter very clearly. It, it's incredible sometimes that people of, um, of that age can have such, such, such clarity in, in recollecting details. When he came back, he looked at her and she said, ah, c'est la guerre, in French, as a, as a sort of, um, you know, with, with a shrug. Um, so she kept a little bit of sense of humour. So they cross and, and it, this um, ship takes them to an island which is still German, which is now off the Polish coast, called Volin. And they have this extraordinary interlude where it's a sort of no man's land because people know this can't stay in German hands forever. But because of its weird geography, it, you know, it, the, the, it can be sort of kept German for, for maybe another three, four weeks. So her father seeks out an acquaintance on this island and tells him, you know, we don't want to go further west yet. We have to stay. And they stay in this woman's house. And it turns out she realizes that this woman who takes them in and, you know, they have these amazing kind of dinners with, they use up all the coal in the house, all the food, everything. She's about to leave herself. She realizes that this is her father's mistress. Um, th- this place was a, a famous spa uh, destination where he used to go to treat his arthritis every summer and, and she's realised that that's, that's where they were staying. Eventually, they need to leave again and 
one of the tragedies at the time is that um, it's very hard for refugees to go to Western Germany because they're starting to close the borders to them. That's largely because food is running out. Because the, the Nazi food supplies were largely dependent on, on food imports from occupied territories, which have, of course, now all dried up. So the pop- population is almost starving. They, therefore, end up in an area that's still controlled by Germany, Denmark. And here, again, they have a stroke of luck. They go to the south of Denmark, which is still you know, holding people in a, in a, in a fairly disorganised manner, and they get... They have a spell in a in a school um, where all these refugees are put up. My my mother, then a very small child, almost dies because these these places have very bad sanitation, you know, insufficient food, and they are taken in by um, a Danish woman, who uh, who takes them into her home, and they're very you know she saves my mother's life effectively. They're happy there for a couple of months, but and a few months and then eventually obviously Denmark is liberated and the East Prussian refugees a lot of them who had ended up in Denmark are put into internment camps and that's where one of of the most fascinating stories and most tragic stories I think that I discovered in my research begins um they escape the camps but the people who didn't which is the last the vast number of, of uh, East Prussian refugees, who, again, are mainly women and children, get put into these camps um, where they have no access to medical aid at all and very controlled food rations. Now, Denmark was one of the luckier countries in World War II in that they never really endured great food privations. They were, you know, much better organised, clearly, and the refugees in these camps are given a, a ration of, of 2,000 calories a day. Now, that in itself is not much, but it's not starvation level. Uh, to, to, for comparison, the wartime ration in the UK was about 3,000 calories. But you can survive on 2,000 calories. The problem was, overwhelmingly, they were with small children. And children under the age of eight were given a third of that ration. So about 665 calories. And what happened is that the children started dying in droves of preventable diseases. You know, diarrhea, uh, you know, there was never an epidemic per se, but, but, but all these diseases that you would not have suffered from or would have been treated with medical aid, but also would not have happened if they'd received adequate nutrition. And thousands of children died in these conditions. And, and for me, that was... It was a very hard fact to process because I'd always seen the Danes as the good guys in the war. You know, they famously saved almost the entire Jewish population. Um, you know, my my grandfather knew had spent, you know, was part Danish, had spent many years in and some of his happiest times in Denmark. And to know that that the sins of the fathers were visited on the children of these refugees in in, in such a kind of such a deliberate way um, was was quite hard to take and it, it gives you an idea of the amount of, of revenge um, towards the, the broader German population which is understandable in a way but still shocking. Where, did your, where was your mum at the end of the war? 
Uh, where was your mum and your, your grandmother at the end of the war? They ended up in northern Germany um, as refugees. Now, it's strange to talk about German refugees in Germany, but effectively, that's what East Prussians were. They, you, I mean, most of Germany, especially northern Germany at the time, had extreme um, food deprivation. I mean, the, the most of the population, the, the rations... Uh, after the war dropped to a thousand calories a day at one point. I mean, people were starving. So when you had all these incomers from the East, even though they were Germans, they were seen as, you know, people who were exploiting the system, who didn't belong. It was hard enough for people to sort of survive. Um, It was also a place that was almost entirely destroyed so the infrastructure didn't work. As I said, even the food supply chain didn't work anymore. Um, and the men, those who came back, had come back uh, wounded, deeply traumatised. And it's also a huge time of reckoning for the German population because the extent of uh, the Nazi regime's atrocities are, are laid bare for everyone to see. So no one can claim at this point that they no longer n- know what Germany had done. And so, you know, you're as a German then, even a, a German child like my mother is effectively a pariah in the eyes of the world. And to rebuild an identity in the way that Germany did that is, is actually quite remarkable. Is there anything that your grandmother couldn't talk to you about? Yeah, I mean, she revealed um, this great secret that she'd kept. Um, you know, she was a victim of a rape by someone who ran the black market. Um, she had you know, become pregnant and had born a child who she gave up. Um, and she told me about that after a long time. And it, it, it I questioned her before because she kept talking about the most terrible time being after the war. And I kind of wondered what that was about. And, and this finally came out when I least expected it. Um, I was doing something completely different at the time. She was sitting at the kitchen table and she suddenly told me about this. I think um, she told me about it once. I think it was the first time that she that she'd really talked about it. Uh, she couldn't talk to me about that child. I, I found out a little bit about sort of what happened, but I think she felt um, judged by two things that, you know, it's a classic story of, of, of rape, really, and of women being, being sort of blamed, where she went to see this man um, because he'd helped her procure morphine for, for my, my grandfather's mother, who was very ill. Uh, she knew he was a little bit flirtatious. She'd, you know been in his shop on his own, she'd accepted a glass of wine and he'd taken advantage of that. And, and um, whether he drugged a drink or she drank too much, but, you know, especially at the time, this is a story which would have uh, brought very little sympathy for her. The other thing is she felt unable to love the child that um, she bore from this rape. And I think... To, she felt that it was a failure as a woman not to love a child that you've born is something that she still struggled to deal with and couldn't really talk about in depth, even though 
our generation, you know, is much better equipped to deal with these kind of emotions. But I think for women of that time, um, the fact that you've been violated and then that you've somehow failed in what was then seen as your primary function um, to be a nurturer, a, a mother, was um, was very very hard to process. When you were when you were having these conversations with your grandmother, were you were you the journalist? Were you the acclaimed writer that you are, or were you a granddaughter? So this is one of the really interesting things actually that I found when when researching this book. Um, you know, I've been a journalist for many years. I've I've delved in many people's tragedies. You know, some of them, and I've covered wars. I've covered uh, intensely personal stories, and and while some of them have deeply moved me, I always manage to sort of do do it with my sort of professional hat on. At times, when talking to my grandmother, so for example, when she told me about this rape, which effectively was the reason why her love affair with my grandfather didn't survive the the period after the war. She she was pregnant by the time. Um, he came back. Um, I thought, oh, part of me thought, wow, this is an incredible story. You know, this is such a sort of deeply moving person. And then I had to, something in me had to stop myself and thinking, so this is, this is, a you know, my own flesh and blood. My grandmother, who's clearly, and she was shaking when she told me this, you know, a good 60 years later. And, and I had to, you know, I had this continual conflict I think the other thing about delving into the past, especially your own family's past, is that I completely underestimated the effect it could have still today, not just on me, but on my mother and my uh, and her and her sister, child my my grandmother had of a, a long and happy marriage after the war, and I I think I had underestimated the the depths of emotions and that 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 these things can cause i mean i'm I'm lucky in that my family you know were very supportive and and loved the book and for my mother especially it helped to understand her mother who she had quite a difficult relationship with in a way that she hadn't before but i'd underestimated the past's power to wound and it shook me because i'd never really allowed myself to think of my family, because they were Germans, as refugees or victims. It made me look at the refugee crisis that we're seeing today in, in quite a few parts of the world, unfortunately, in a completely different light. You know, the, these are not foreign people, these are not alien people. These are people, you know, th this could be you and me uh, for a twist of events that could spiral out of control in a very, very short time. Now that you've been through this process, do you think there is a healing power in getting all this out, talking about all this, um, or, or do you, or, or, or do you think it is, you know, or do you think it's forcing your mum, people around you, to, to acknowledge trauma in the past that perhaps they they didn't really want to? Like, what, what's the what's the effect been on you and and your wider family? I think it's had a, a, a you know, after a few difficult. Uh, first months, it's had a, a, a tremendously positive impact. Um, I had a conversation with my godmother the other day, who is also a, a sort of German who who was born during the war, and you know she she felt it was the voices of of you know her mother of herself that that kind of finally 
uh, these voices were being heard. I think, you know, many, I've had sort of uh, correspondence from many women who've read the book who have been victims of sexual assault and who, because usually they were of an older generation, hadn't really felt able to speak about it. And you now real, realise that it, it's never too late, even though, yes, it can wound, just to acknowledge that, that this happened to you and that you were a victim is, um, is I think, very cathartic. But I think more broadly, I see some, a very, something more urgent in, in the questions that it, it's led me to reflect on. You know, my my family were good people. They were, you know, fairly fairly ordinary people, um, who whose main fault was to struggle and to be slow to process the enormity of the change that had been thrust upon their country, and who were sort of fairly slow to act upon it. And when they realised it, it was too late. And I think that you know the rise of populism that we see in some parts of the world today should lead us to reflect you know when is it when have things gone too far when has a line been crossed what is that line and yet would I really be you know strident in my in my opposition to it and I, I, I don't think any society sadly is immune to the to the kind of horror that that Germany went through. Well, that's a cheerful thought to end on, Svenja and Dawn. Thank you very much indeed. Um, that Your book is um, a stunning achievement uh, and obviously makes me wish, I was very close to my grandma, and makes me wish, as everyone I'm sure is saying at the moment, makes me wish that I'd applied the rigour of a journalist and a writer to in talking to my grandma and interviewing her as you've done for yours. And your family, as well as all of us, are very lucky to have had you do that because um they're the richer for it but so are we so are the general public um so congratulations the book is called the book is called inga's war inga being my grandmother's name and it is on sale now everyone make sure you go and get it and read it thank you svenja i feel we had the history on our shoulders all this tradition of ours our school history our songs this part of the history of our country all were gone and finished and liquidated one child one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.